My name is PJ, and I host a show called Simply Strange. From cold cases to aliens, cryptids to ghost stories, every episode of Simply Strange is a storytelling experience that will take you on a journey through some of our world's darkest mysteries, putting you in the shoes of those who experienced them, while also attempting to uncover the truth behind the madness. So if you love thought-provoking stories that will disturb you to your core, and maybe make you check the closet before you turn the lights out, then I would like to cordially invite you to come check out Simply Strange at simplystrangepodcast.com. Or just search Simply Strange wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you feel like it. Hey guys, I'm Christina. And I'm Amanda. And we are the co-hosts of I'm Sorry What the Podcast. A true crime comedy podcast. Based out of Minnesota. So if you like Minnesotan accents. And dad jokes. And dark humor. These are a few of my favorite things. We also cuss a lot. (laughs) And sing. So if that's up your alley, then you can find us at our website, iswthepodcast.com. We're also available at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at iswthepodcast. Wait. Did we say we talk about murder? Uh, I'm sorry, what? This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right, MC Nation, I know it's been a while. I do apologize about that. Thank you for all the people who have been understanding about it. This is basically two episodes rolled into one uh, for very specific reasons. I had to hold off on recording and stuff for a minute because of some news that I'll be giving you guys uh, later on here in a couple months. Some big things in the in the works, which is really, really exciting. But I do have to go ahead and say... Uh, I do have some Patreon subscribers. I'm going to shout those guys out and gals out on the next episode. Uh, for those of you who do want to subscribe to Patreon, just go to patreon.com backslash mysterious circumstances. There's extra content there along with you can subscribe to like once a month Skype calls with me, whatever. On this episode, I'm not going to give my final thoughts on John Dillinger uh, because of my YouTube channel. I'm going to start doing that on my YouTube channel, doing videos on there. For those of you who do have YouTube, which everybody fucking does, go ahead and just type in Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, hit the subscribe button, and um, after I cover a case uh, on the podcast, I'm going to go on there and make a video and uh, give my personal thoughts and opinions on uh, on a lot of that stuff. What else is there? Social media wise, you can follow me on Instagram. At, it's a mysterious podcast. Uh, you can follow my personal Instagram if you want. It's at burnitall13. 
You can follow me on Twitter, at PodcastMC. You can stop by the Facebook page like that. You can join the group, type in MC Nation, Mysterious Circumstances, hit the group button. Bam, there we are. Just make sure you answer the questions. Otherwise, you will not get in the group. Other than that, I do have a lot of new reviews to read. Uh, I'm going to hold those off until the next episode as well. So if you do have a review that you want sent in, or if you want you want read, uh, go ahead and send that in here sometime soon because the next episode will be up here in a few days. So I guess with uh, all that being said, my name is Justin. This is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to The Life and Crimes of John Dillinger, Part 3. By the summer of 1934, the FBI had hunted down or gunned down almost every big-time bank robber they could point their guns at, except for one of them. Public enemy number one, John Dillinger. The Little Bohemia shootout, Dillinger's escape, was a thermonuclear bomb. I mean, it was electrifying. It was the lead story in every newspaper in the United States. And my dad played with Dillinger. He played cards on Laguna Avenue across the street from the A&P store. And he said he was an honest guy. He wouldn't cheat anybody by a penny. They asked him, how come he robs? And he said, well, I don't rob the poor, I rob the rich. That's what he told me. But he was honest, he was a real nice guy, and my dad liked him. It was Hoover himself who benefited most from the life and death of John Dillinger. Using Dillinger's colorful career, he built the FBI into the powerful establishment it is today. But while Hoover would continue to consolidate his power for generations to come, it was this Indiana farm boy whose short career was the flashpoint in American crime history. It was with John Dillinger that the modern era of crime fighting was born, and the era of the romantic desperado died. A crowd of 5,000 mourners attended the funeral. He was a hero to the people of the Depression with its millions of impotent victims. Swarms of people converged on Dillinger's funeral in Mooresville. So reverent were his admirers that the crowd beat up a reporter for not demonstrating the proper respect. Dillinger was always himself. He was perceived to be different than he was, uh, largely by the, the hype that was given in the media. But he, he was true to himself. If there is such a thing as a good bad guy, Dillinger was a good bad guy. When they finally brought him down, I think it could be honestly said that people were a bit uh, saddened. My own father used to remark, I don't necessarily approve of what John Dillinger done, but you got to give him credit. Uh, first off, I have to acknowledge a couple sources that I used very specific information from. Not all information is easy to find, so when I do find very specific information, I do like to credit those sources. One of those being Dillinger, The Hidden Truth by Tony Stewart. The other one being The Ottawa Journal, Section 2, from Saturday, October 17th, 1936. And it was an article written by Melvin Purvis. So I do have to acknowledge those sources. So where we left off at is Dillinger escapes Crown Point. Crazy, crazy escape, okay? And obviously, as I pointed out at the, you know, end of part two, towards the end of part two, there more than likely was some shady, shady stuff going on to get him out of that jail. 
mostly led by his lawyer, uh, Louis Pickett, who was a shady, shady underworld lawyer. But as you guys know, I like adding context. So where we're going to start off with is someone who I really haven't mentioned in part one or two. Uh, there really wasn't a need for it until about now. Uh, I'm going to talk about Melvin Purvis for a second. Uh, he is obviously a central figure when it comes to John Dillinger. He is the man with who's credited with catching him along with other gangsters during the Great Depression era. So Melvin Purvis was born October 24th, 1903 in Timmonsville, South Carolina. He graduated from the University of South Carolina with a law degree in 1925. He went to work at a law firm after that by the name of Wilcox and Hardy. Um, and he actually thought about being a diplomat. The State Department wasn't hiring at that time, so he kind of uh, was looking for something else to do. And at that time, J. Edgar Hoover was really, really trying to recruit for the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, so, you know, Purvis kind of saw that as a really big opportunity because it was a new government agency. He ended up joining the Bureau in 1927. Now Purvis excelled as a field agent. He quickly rose through the ranks. He was one of the few agents that was given special attention by Hoover, even though his administrative performance wasn't the best. Now during his career, his early career, he headed the Division of Investigation Offices in Birmingham, Alabama, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Cincinnati, Ohio. And he, uh, performed his duties just perfectly. I mean, the dude was pretty much made for this, you know. In 1932, he was placed in charge of the Chicago office by J. Edgar Hoover. Melvin Purvis was not a very big dude, all right? He was five foot four, no more than about 130 pounds. Uh, everybody called him uh, Little Mel or Nervous Purvis was another nickname that he was given. I mean, even J. Edgar Hoover called him Little Mel. Uh, he was very, very softly spoken. He didn't uh, talk very much. Like, he was very, very careful with his words. But he had that southern drawl, too, that should be noted. Most of his FBI career was the fact that he did track down just the most notorious gangsters during the Great Depression era. So, I mean, he definitely made a stake for himself. So, if you recall from Part 2... The next day after the breakout, between March 4th and 6th, 1934, John Dillinger rents apartment 106 at the Santa Monica Apartments in Minneapolis, Minnesota with Billy Frechette. On Tuesday, March 13th, 1934, at 2.40 p.m., Dillinger robs First National Bank of Mason City, Iowa with Homer Van Meter, Eddie Green, Tommy Carroll, Babyface Nelson, and John Hamilton. Now, Dillinger and Hamilton are wounded. R.H. James, who is a bystander, was wounded in the leg, and their take from that robbery was $52,000, which is the equivalent of a little under $1 million today. Now, at midnight, March 14th, 1934, uh, he needs medical attention real bad. Uh, Dillinger and Hamilton are taken to the home of Dr. Nels Mortensen in St. Paul, Minnesota, by Pat Riley. Uh, he is accompanied by Homer Van Meter. Pat Riley is kind of like a newer hanger-on member of the gang. He's not really a central figure, but he is involved with them. On Friday, March 16th, just two days later, 
Dillinger and Billy arrive in Chicago to meet with Pickett. Pickett uh, was unavailable, so they end up meeting with O'Leary, who, as you remember, was uh, Pickett's like personal investigator, you know, whatever you want to call him. And they were pretty much going to discuss uh, Billy wanted to divorce her husband, who was in prison at the time, so that her and Dillinger could actually get married. On Monday, March 19th, 1934, Billy travels to Mooresville, Indiana to deliver a letter from Dillinger along with the wooden gun that he broke out of Crown Point with and sums of money for Audrey Hancock, who is uh, John's sister and Dillinger's father as well. Tuesday, March 20th, 1934, Dillinger moves in with Billy Frechette at the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul, Minnesota under the name of Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman. Rent is roughly about 60 bucks a month. The reason that they go here is because St. Paul at this time uh, in Minnesota was known for corrupt cops. It was a safe haven for gangsters. So there were a lot of gangsters in and out around St. Paul at this area at this point in time. So, you know, they saw it as kind of a safe place that they could go. So on Friday, March 23rd, 1934, Dillinger drives to Leipzig, Ohio, and visits Harry Pierpont's mother to discuss uh, the possibility of breaking him out of jail and uh, leaves money for an attorney for uh, Pierpont, Clark, and Makeley, who, if you recall from part two, were in some pretty deep shit. The next day on Saturday, March 24th, Pierpont and Makeley are sentenced to death by electric chair for the murder of Sheriff Jess Sarber. Executions are set for Friday, June 13th, 1934. Clark ends up uh, being given a life sentence. On Tuesday, March 27th, 1934, Pierpont and Makeley are transferred to the state prison in Columbus, Ohio to await execution. Uh, Clark is also transferred. And then the following Friday, March 30th, 1934, what's known as the Lincoln Court Shootout goes down. So there's a caretaker named Daisy Coffey who uh, she testified at Billy's trial that she lived at 310 across from 303, which is where they were living right now. Uh, they saw she saw a new Hudson sedan in the driveway. She sees Billy like spending most of her days furnishing the apartment, and she considered this quote unquote suspicious activity. So she files a report with the FBI. Agents Rufus Coulter and Rusty Knowles and Detective Henry Cummings put apartment three zero three under surveillance, and they really don't see anything unusual because well, Daisy Coffee might have been. Just a, a fuck nosy old lady, you know what I'm saying? So on Saturday, March 31st, the next day, 1934, 10.15 a.m., Agent Knowles drives around the back, and like I said, this place is under surveillance, and he doesn't see the car. So Detective Cummings starts checking out the building, all right? So about 10 minutes later, about 10.25-ish in the morning, Homer Van Meter shows up, parks the car, Coulter and Cummings go knock on the door of 303, and Billy opens up the door just a few inches. She says she's not dressed and to come back later and shuts the door. Well, she turns around, and Dillinger's in there, and she tells him, she's like, hey, man, there's some feds, there's some cops here, you know, shit's about to go down. So Agent Coulter says, you know, he bangs on the door, he's like, we can't wait, okay. So he's sitting there waiting, you know, just a couple minutes for her to 
you know, throw clothes on from what she said. Van Meter ends up showing up in the hallway of the building and he asks Agent Coulter if his name is Johnson. And Coulter's like, no, my name's not Johnson. He's like, oh, okay. So he continues on and Van Meter gets to the third floor landing and Agent Coulter asks him his name. And Van Meter says, you know, I'm just a soap salesman. Doesn't even tell him a name or anything. So Agent Coulter's like, all right, well, where are your soap samples? So Van Meter's like, oh, they're out in the car. So he goes to start heading towards uh, downstairs towards the car. And uh, Agent Coulter follows him. Now they get to the lobby and Van Meter turns around just starts shooting, okay? Now Agent Knowles recognizes Homer Van Meter as soon as he starts shooting. He's like, holy shit, man. Like, this guy's, you know, wanted by the feds. Dillinger grabs a Tommy gun at this point in time, once he hears the gunfire, and just starts shooting it through the front door of this apartment. Uh, Detective Cummings takes cover. Van Meter jumps on a coal truck that's driving by at that exact moment and totally escapes. Now, John Dillinger walks out the front door, fires another burst from the Tommy gun at Detective Cummings, uh, who's shooting back with his revolver. He actually hits John Dillinger in the left, in the left calf, and uh, run, he runs out of ammo, so he takes off and retreats. And John Dillinger and Billy go out the back and uh, get in the car and, and make their getaway. So, Dillinger's wounded. Him and Frechette drive to a guy named Eddie Green's apartment in Minneapolis for help. Now, at 11 a.m., Green takes Dillinger to Dr. Clayton E. May to treat his wounded calf, uh, and he's with Green and Green's wife, Beth, and Frechette is following in Green's car. Now, Dr. May drove Dillinger to Minneapolis to the apartment of a woman named Augusta Salt, uh, who had been providing nursing services and a bed for some of Dr. May's more unsavory clients for the last few years, you know, because he was known to just take a huge sum of money and just be like, listen, I don't give a shit if you're a criminal, if you're going to pay me money, you know what I mean? So a few days later on Tuesday, April 3rd, Eddie Green, uh, he ends up getting shot and killed by agents in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, Eddie's rambling unconsciously as he's dying while federal agents are sitting there writing everything down. And there's a, there's a lot of um, speculation as to some of the methods that the feds and Melvin Purvis would use to extract information from the gangsters. And um, one of those methods would have been torture, whether they were dying of gunshot wounds or not. But uh, Eddie Green does end up dying on April 4th. Dillinger and Billy leave Dr. Mays and they head for Mooresville, Indiana. Uh, the next day they arrive there at the Dillinger farm and uh, John Sr. starts calling all the family members because, well... They're uh, pretty much planning a family reunion right now. Uh, now, on April 6th, the next day after that, about 8 p.m., Dillinger and his half-brother Hubert drive to Leipzig, Ohio, which is about 210 miles away, to make uh, to make contact with Pierpont's family, who are not home. Uh, and they end up leaving to go back to Mooresville at about midnight. Now, Saturday, April 7th, at about 3.30 in the morning, Hubert falls asleep driving. He falls right asleep at the wheel right around uh, Noblesville area 
on US 31, which is about 50 miles northeast of Mooresville, and he wrecks the car that they're in, okay? He ends up hitting another car, goes through a farm fence, and about 200 feet into some woods. Now, they leave the car and end up walking back to the farm. Now, the cops find the car, and when they find the car, inside they find maps, rope, machine gun magazine, and a fucking bullwhip, all right? Shit you not, there's a bullwhip in there. And according to Hubert, uh, John Dillinger was planning to pay a visit to Joseph Ryan, uh, who was the one-armed lawyer from Crown Point, if you remember me talking about him. Uh, well, Dillinger claimed that he took off with his retainer fee when he ended up replacing him with uh, Louis Pickett. So he was going to take this bullwhip and go fucking whip this dude. Like, literally. So, you know pretty fucking interesting kind of funny you know it is what it is so about seven hours later about 10 30 a.m hubert and his wife and billy and possibly dillinger i read both accounts that dillinger was here at this point i heard that he wasn't so it's 50 50 for me uh they go to purchase a car which was a black four-door ford uh in indianapolis for straight up cash uh, Billy lists her address as 409 North LaSalle Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, which is actually Hubert's address, and she uses the name Mrs. Fred Penfield. Now, at about 2.30 p.m., about four hours later, they go pick up the car and, and, and head back to Mooresville. Uh, on Sunday, April 8, 1934, when the police discover that the money that they used to buy this car was actually stolen money, uh, they get Hubert's address and they go raid Hubert's house. Uh, obviously, they didn't find anything of, you know, instance because, well, he was uh, pretty sure at the, the fucking family reunion, man. So, Dillinger family reunion back in Mooresville. Who's all there at the farm that day? Uh, well, we got John Dillinger, Billy Frechette. John W. Dillinger, 69 years old, which was John Sr., Audrey Hancock, 45, which was John's sister, Emmett Hancock, who was 50, which was the husband of Audrey, Mary Hancock, 18, daughter of Audrey, Alberta Hancock, 14, daughter of Audrey, Fred Hancock, 26, son of Audrey, Norman Hancock, 21, son of Audrey, Hubert Dillinger, 20, who was a half-brother of John, Doris Dillinger, 15, which was uh, John's half-sister, and then Francis Dillinger, 11, who was also, again, John's half-sister. So it's literally a bunch of his nieces and nephews and half-brothers and sisters and his dad and his girlfriend. The best part about this whole family reunion right here is that the farm was under fucking surveillance at the time, okay? And, uh... Can you imagine, like I'm literally rubbing my eyes right now because it's just like, okay, John Dillinger's probably the most wanted man in the fucking country right now. I mean, the dude's got thousands of cops and federal agents that are looking for him and he's literally goes to his farm that he grew up on 
while it's under surveillance and he's fucking hanging out eating fried chicken for all we know. You know what I mean? Getting pictures taken. He's literally there. A lot of pictures you see of John Dillinger. Um, like the one, the famous one where he's standing there with, uh, with the Tommy gun and his suit, the big ass smile on his face and he's got the wooden gun in his other hand. That's when that picture was taken. Was that his family reunion? You know what I mean? Like the dude's just taking pictures with everybody, eating a bunch of food, hanging the fuck out, having a good time, having a beer. The whole time, it's under surveillance. Later, a little bit later in the afternoon, agents J.L. Garrity and T.J. Donegan were cruising by the neighborhood there in their car, and John Dillinger, like, starts saying, oh, shit, man, maybe we're being watched, because they were acting really weird, you know what I mean? You can always tell a fed. Well, back then you could anyway. Nowadays, you just never fucking know. So after dinner, Dillinger leaves for Chicago, and they leave in separate cars. Billy drove the new Ford V8 with uh, two of Dillinger's nieces, Mary Hancock in the front seat and Alberta Hancock in the back. Dillinger was on the floor in the back uh, of the car. He was later seen (laughs) by Donegan and Garrity, the two agents, but he wasn't recognized. They didn't even fucking recognize him. Now, eventually, Norman Hancock, he was driving the other V8. Uh, He proceeded with Dillinger and Billy to Chicago, uh, where they separated from from Norman. Like, once they all got to Chicago, Norman kind of went his separate way and, and did whatever. Now, on Monday afternoon, April 9th, 1934, Dillinger had an appointment at a tavern. He really felt kind of awkward about it, so Billy went to go in first And as soon as she walks in, she's arrested by federal agents. And God bless the woman, she refused to tell the agents where Dillinger was. So Dillinger was in his car waiting outside the tavern, and then he ended up driving off unnoticed because she wouldn't talk. Unfortunately, this was the last time these two would ever see each other. Literally would never see each other again. Dillinger became despondent after Billy was arrested. He ended up driving around the block several times after she got arrested, and uh, some of the gang members, like Pat Sherrington, who was the girlfriend of Dillinger gang member John Hamilton, um, she literally had to convince him that he would be killed if he tried to rescue her. Because John Dillinger was like, I need to know how to get her out. That's my girl. That's the woman I'm going to marry. I need to rescue her. And, you know, Pat was just kind of like, listen, dude, you try to rescue her, like, this is exactly what they want. This is what they're looking for. You try to do that, they're going to fucking kill you in a heartbeat. You know, and I honestly kind of believe that. I think it was kind of bait, you know. They're like, hey, let's get his girl, you know. He's going to try to break her out. So, Sherrington actually later stated that uh, Dillinger started crying like a baby when he realized that he couldn't really rescuer like right then so dillinger paid his own lawyer pickett to take uh frechette's case before his death dillinger frequently met with his lawyers about frechette's appeal even though he was already dating polly hamilton at the time which we'll talk about here a little bit later Uh, in one letter frechette sent dillinger she begged him not to try to rescue her because she knew that he would be identified and killed So she literally, like, begged him, like, don't try to rescue me. (laughs) Even though she sent those letters, Dillinger still went to the prison to case the place out to see if he could plan, you know, an an escape attempt, you know, try to get her out. 
you know, after like really, really assessing the situation, he was pretty reluctant, but he decided that, you know, it was more than likely going to be impossible to break her out of there. But Homer Van Meter says, hey man, you know, we might want to try it. I know where I could find some bulletproof vests. So on Friday, April 13th, 1934, late at night, Dillinger and Van Meter took Warsaw, Indiana police officer Judd Pittenger hostage. They marched him at gunpoint to the police station where they stole two revolvers and four bulletproof vests. You know, they ended up getting out of there unscathed. Now, after separating, Dillinger went and picked up John Hamilton, who's known as Red Hamilton. Uh, he was recovering from the Mason City robbery from his wounds. The two then traveled to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where they visited Hamilton's sister, Anna Steve. Now, at this point, at the state prison in Columbus, Ohio, a guy named Warden Preston Thomas intercepts a pamphlet of St. John's Gospel sent to Pierpont from a person who he believes is Dillinger. The scriptural pamphlet was a page turned down and a chapter marked with blue ink, and it reads, quote, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's home are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. End quote. Preston intercepts another communication mailed from Chicago on April 16th that reads, quote, Have no fear. Jesus has come once. He will come again. End quote. So, they were planning on breaking Pierpont out of prison. Saturday, April 14th, 1934. Allegedly... Dillinger and Van Meter stop at the Evening Star Tourist Camp in Cedar Rapids, Iowa to speak to the owner, Mrs. Frank Cargan, about a cabin. Mrs. Cargan explains to the two men that the camp uh, is not yet open for business, but after the fact, she discovers that one of the cabins had been broken into and that the two men probably stayed two or three nights. How much of that, I believe, I don't really know. There's so many people, you know, kind of like the stories of Jesse James. Oh, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you guys remember from my Jesse James series, it's like, yeah, that's fucking great. Like, everybody's got those stories, but we want some hard evidence. But anyway, moving on. Tuesday, April 17th, 1934, John... Hamilton and John Dillinger drive to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan to visit Hamilton's sister. And after that, they go to head to a little place called Little Bohemia. Literally lighting a cigarette right now because shit is about to get real. How I'm going to explain this to you is I'm going to simultaneously give you the gangster's account and the feds account. And it is a wild fucking ride of about five minutes. Okay. So, Little Bohemia Lodge is located in Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin. Fucking hope I pronounced that right. Thank you, Jason Fonder, for helping me pronounce that. Because I was like, I don't want to fuck this up. But um, it's owned by a guy named Emil Wanatka. Okay. Now, a little bit of backstory. At one point in time, Wanatka needed advice on legal matters. And he contacted Louis Pickett who also happened to be John Dillinger's legal counsel. It's unlikely that Dillinger would pick a particular lodge without prior knowledge that Pickett and Wanatka were old acquaintances. Pickett may have made some type of prearranged agreement with Wanatka to help Dillinger, 
business slow during the year. Winotka was struggling to pay off the mortgage. Dillinger uh, paid Winotka $500, which in today's money was a little bit under ten grand. And he paid them, paid him that for, you know, three days rent at Little Bohemia. There's a shitload of money at this point in time, you know what I mean? And this kind of suggests that Wanatka probably knew Dillinger's identity in advance. And there's other things that kind of tip you off to that. Uh, Wanatka would wait until Dillinger paid him the 500 and he was more than likely planning to contact the FBI to get the uh the ten thousand dollar reward money they put a ten thousand dollar reward on on his head and and at this point in time that's a little under two hundred thousand dollars okay this was a lot of money in 1934 it's a lot of money now you know you know this would have helped Wanatka a whole hell of a lot you know because of business being so slow so there is a suggested theory that you know there was a there's a little bit of a conspiracy or or a plan hatched to basically you know, take Dillinger's money and then to, you know, make sure Wanatka didn't get into any trouble for harboring him later on down the road. He was going to turn him in for 10 more thousand dollars. So, you know, that's neither here nor there. We're not 100% sure on that. On Friday, April 20th, 1934, at 1 p.m., Homer Van Meter, Marie Comforty, and Pat Riley arrive at Little Bohemia Lodge in Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin. Emil Winotka came out to greet them. Three people got out of the car. Like I said, Homer Van Meter, his girlfriend Marie Comforty, and uh, the gang associate Pat Riley. An employee of the lodge stated one of the outlaws, who was probably Homer Van Meter, called out to, to Winotka saying, Hello, Emil. Van Meter had been sent ahead to check things out and make certain that no federal agents were, were snooping around, you know what I'm saying? So Van Meter approached Wanatka and asked if the lodge was serving lunch. Wanatka replies yes and invited them into the lodge. After lunch, Van Meter asked if Wanatka had room to put up 10 guests for a few days. Wanatka was very happy about this and he showed them to their rooms. George Bazo and Frank Traub... I don't know how the fuck you pronounce his last name. T-R-A-U-B-E. Traub, Traub, Troby. Um, they were employees of the lodge. They ended up carrying the luggage into the lodge. And uh, Bazo, or Bezo, he, he actually remarked to Wanatka that one suitcase was so heavy that it felt like it had lead in it. And, and Wanatka is like, literally told him, he's like, mind your own business, dude. All right. So... Van Meter tells Wanatka that the rest of the guests would be arriving later that day. They proceeded to uh, play some slot machines. Uh, Homer Van Meter fed the dogs, and they're just basically sitting around waiting for Dillinger to show up. So between 5 and 5.30 p.m., Dillinger arrives with John Hamilton, Pat Sherrington, Tommy Carroll, and his wife, Jean Delaney, and Babyface Nelson and his wife, Helen Gillis. Uh, the reason the name is different is because Babyface Nelson, that's not actually his real name. His real name was uh, Lester Gillis, and that's not a badass gangster name. So, you know, you know how that goes. So Wanaka noticed that all the guests were well-dressed, very polite. Dillinger and some of the other gang members took rooms on the upper portion of the lodge. Dillinger's room was the first on the left, just uh, at the top of the stairway. Hamilton and Pat Sherrington took a room. At uh, the end of the hall, on the left-hand side, Van Meter and Comforty took a room on the right across from Hamilton. 
Now, Babyface Nelson and his wife, and then Tommy Carroll and Jean Delaney, they took rooms in the cottage to the right of the lodge. I'm not 100% sure how many uh, cottages were over there. There were a couple lodges over to the right-hand side. About an hour later, the guests were served a big steak dinner, and after dinner, the uh, the guests unpacked and settled in their rooms. Some of the party went out for a walk to uh, check out the best possible escape routes for a quick getaway if they needed to make one, and they did this because the main entrance to Little Bohemia was the only exit, and the gang saw this as a really huge risk. Police could easily block off the road, they'd be trapped. So after talking it over, everyone agreed the best escape route would be along the shore banks of the lake. Later that evening, some of the party did relax while uh, others played some hands of poker. When Naka actually joined in and played a few hands of poker, uh, he actually quit because the stakes started getting a little too high. When Natka later recalled, when Dillinger leaned over to collect his winnings, he noticed two forty-five automatics concealed beneath his coat. That more than likely is not true because there is uh, pretty undeniable evidence that Dillinger was always partial to 38 revolvers throughout his entire criminal career, and 45 automatics weren't that popular in the early 1930s. Uh, even the FBI carried 38 revolvers. Now, Wanatka soon noticed that all of the men had guns on him. Now, after noticing the guns, he grew suspicious of the guests, as if he didn't know them, you know, there's a possibility he did not know they were gangsters, okay, we can't say concrete one way or the other, so he gets a little suspicious, and he goes into the kitchen and looks through some newspapers, and he sees several pictures of John Dillinger, so that evening, Wanadka and his wife, they couldn't sleep, they were like kind of freaking out, so throughout the night, they kept hearing constant sounds of feet walking up and down the hallway, keys jingling, and the dogs barking outside, after a restless night, Wanatka got up early to find Tommy Carroll was already up and about. So Tommy Carroll told Wanaka that he uh, really slept well and asked, uh, asked him to make him some breakfast. So Wanaka asked him to wake up the rest of the guys, you know, and he'll start making breakfast. And so Tommy Carroll went upstairs and woke everybody up. Later, when Dillinger was alone, Wanaka confronted him and said he recognized his picture in the newspapers, and Wanaka told Dillinger that his home and his family were all he had, and he didn't want any trouble. Wanaka says that Dillinger responded in a calm and friendly manner, assuring him that there would not be any trouble. He went on to say that the boys needed some rest and would only be staying a very short while. Now, Wanaka seemed like a pretty trustworthy guy but the gang did keep their eyes and ears open. They had to be cautious around anybody, pretty much. Dillinger was always cool and calm, but it really wasn't him that they were concerned about. Okay, Homer Van Meter and Babyface Nelson were crazy. Like, Babyface Nelson was a fucking psychopath. He is definitely a future episode. I can guarantee you that right now. That dude was off the chain, man. Alright, so that's pretty much what made Winotka the most nervous. So, when the phone would ring, there would always be someone close by, eavesdropping on the conversation. When a guest or visitor would arrive at the lodge, Winotka, you know, would be asked, you know, who's that? You know, do you know that person? You know, that kind of shit. Now, Dillinger knew Winotka was worried and stuff, and he kept trying to cheer him up. So, Dillinger uh, even played Winotka's favorite game of Pinochle. 
After breakfast, Wanatka was asked if he owned a gun, and he replied that he had a twenty-two rifle, and then everybody goes outside for a little bit of target practice. A tin can was set up on a snowbank, and everyone took turns shooting the rifle until it jammed, and then Dillinger told Van Meter to go get one of their rifles out of the car. Uh, later on, Wanatka claimed that only he and Van Meter were good enough to hit the target. Now, meanwhile, eight-year-old Emil Wanaka Jr. was throwing the baseball and playing catch with Babyface Nelson. Uh, he ended up quitting playing catch because uh, Babyface Nelson was throwing the ball too hard, and it wasn't fun for him anymore. Now, Mrs. Wanatka had planned to take Emil Jr. to a cousin's birthday party at the home of her brother, a guy named George Laporte. The party was also a good excuse to leave for a while and ask relatives for advice on contacting the authorities. Mrs. Wanatka walked up to Dillinger, who was sitting at the card table, and asked him for permission to drive Emil Jr. to the event. Uh, Dillinger put his trust in Mrs. Wanatka and gave her, and you know, said, "Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do it." He basically wanted her to continue just her normal routines, like nothing weird was going on. And the women of the gang, uh, the three ladies, actually offered to do the uh, the cooking and cleaning while she went to the party, too. You know, a lot of people point out, you know, the act of good faith doesn't sound like a family being held hostage and terrorized by the outlaws, which is what Wanatka, you know, later told authorities. Now, Dillinger did trust Mrs. Wanatka, but at the same time, she was thinking that somebody was probably following her on her way there. And she was uh, absolutely right. Babyface Nelson had been following her. Uh, Nelson was very suspicious of everything and everybody. You know, he had a very good reason to be so. Uh, Mrs. Wanatka drove to Manitowish to pick up her brother, Lloyd Laporte, and then headed to Mercer to mail a letter addressed to George Fisher, who's the assistant district attorney of Chicago. In the letter... There was a statement informing Fisher that Dillinger was at the lodge. At the party, Mrs. Wanatka discussed the situation with her brother-in-laws, Henry Voss, Lloyd, and George Laporte. and They all formed like this plan and went and put it into action. Now, Voss would call the Milwaukee Police Department on Sunday as long as Emil Wanatka agreed to the plan. Like, they wanted him to be involved. They wanted him to agree to it because all these guys... You know, at the end of the day, they were at his place, and it was his family that was at risk. So, a pack of cigarettes with a note hidden inside would uh, give Lloyd Laporte the answer early Sunday morning, and Voss would make the call, if that would have been the case. To avoid the possibility of being followed by gang members, Voss would then drive 60 miles away to make the phone call. Milwaukee police told Voss to contact Special Agent Melvin Purvis of the FBI in Chicago. Sunday, April 22nd, 1934 at 1 p.m. The telephone rings in Purvis's apartment in Chicago. A U.S. Marshal said that a man named Voss at Rhinelander, Wisconsin, wanted to give info on where Dillinger was. Immediately, a call was placed to Mr. Voss by Purvis. He said, quote, The man you want most is up here. And at first, he didn't want to mention the name of who it was over the telephone to Purvis. And Purvis asks, you mean Dillinger? And Voss replied, yes, six members of the Dillinger gang are at a resort called Little Bohemia, and Dillinger is among them. 
the U.S. Marshal actually vouched for Voss's information. I don't know if he actually knew him or what the case was there, but he vouched. He's like, listen, if this guy's giving you information, it's probably fucking true. So Purvis asked Voss the location of the nearest airport to Little Bohemia. He stated that Rhinelander was the nearest airport and that it was 50 miles away from there. Purvis told him to wait at the airport and wear a handkerchief around his neck so that he could identify him upon arrival there when he got there by plane. Purvis called the office and issued instructions to have every man report immediately. He called Hoover in Washington and informed him fully of what was going on, and both of them agreed that Purvis should request St. Paul office to send men uh, from there to meet Purvis by plane at Rhinelander. J. Edgar Hoover at this time put Assistant Director Hugh Clegg in charge of the operation, which made uh, Purvis actually second in charge. This was Hoover's way to keep Purvis out of the public's eye uh, because, well, Melvin Purvis was, he was a mixture of things to Hoover. First of all, he was his golden boy because he was doing all the fucking work. And second of all, he was starting to get more attention than J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was a fucking egomaniac. Sorry for any federal, you know, agents who might be listening to this, but J. Edgar Hoover can kiss my ass, alright? He was an egomaniac, he was a dirty motherfucker. So, basically Purvis was getting more attention than Hoover, and... You know, that's half the reason that Hoover wanted Dillinger so fucking bad is because he was getting so all this attention so much more than him. He literally couldn't stand it. Okay, like I think 50-50, John Dillinger was a bank robber. 50-50, the public liked him more and he was getting more headlines than the FBI and Hoover was. And I'm sorry, but that's a sad reality right there. All right, so Hoover, you know, tried... It didn't matter what Hoover tried to do uh, about Purvis, you know. He was... Purvis was running the show at the Little Bohemia Lodge when it comes down to brass tacks. So, almost immediately, automobile loads of special agents started for Rhinelander from Chicago and St. Paul. Two planes were chartered in Chicago. Um, they requested that the pilots be instructed to warm up the planes immediately so that they wouldn't lose any time taking off. As soon as, you know, the feds got to the airport, they could just get in the plane and go. Uh, they loaded up guns, bulletproof vests, and tear gas equipment. Um, the federal agents did not know the terrain and were unfamiliar with the area, so they uh, they would have to plan the raid after they landed. You know, Purvis goes on to say, you know, in this article that I, you know, stated at the beginning of the episode, you know, he says, like, this plane ride to Little Bohemia, he's like, it was like a bunch of, you know, troops preparing for battle because they knew that if they showed up and John Dillinger and any members of his gang were there, they were not going to go out without a fight. They were going to shoot it out. So they said it was very, like, um, you know, very quiet and very tense, the whole plane ride there. So the plane touches down just before dusk. Uh, while it's landing, one wheel felled. So... You know, one of the wheels of the plane is fucked up. They couldn't steady the plane. One of the wing, one of the wings almost hit the ground. Not to mention, in quick succession of each other, the two planes from Chicago and then one plane from St. Paul all lands like three planes, just bam, bam, bam. And it's sixteen men carrying a shitload of heavy luggage. And they actually told people that they were members of a wedding party and they were in a hurry. Agents from St. Paul 
from the St. Paul plane had already started trying to gather up automobiles and cars, you know, because they didn't have those kinds of resources back then. Purvis ends up finding Voss, and he says that Dillinger, five members of the gang, and four women were there. He got there at about noon the previous Friday, which was two days before that, and they were going to be leaving the following morning. And Voss says Dillinger walked in, announced himself, and that he had been sent there by a friend who has a tavern in Fox River Grove, which is by Chicago. Uh, he also tells Purvis that Emma Wanatka, his wife, his eight-year-old son, two employees were being held there. Mr. Wanatka had placed a note in a package of cigarettes and had given this package to Mr. Voss. Written on the note was the information that Dillinger was there and that Mr. Voss should report the fact to the authorities. You know, like the feds had time to plan basically since John Dillinger wasn't leaving until the next morning. One special agent was sent with Mr. Voss with instructions to wait at the Voss's home, uh, which was about two miles from Little Bohemia. A man who had come to Rhinelander with Mr. Voss had agreed to go with the feds and point out the location of the resort. Back at the lodge, Dillinger told Winotka that he had a change of plans and decided to check out as soon as Pat Riley returned. Um, he had sent Pat Riley and uh, Sherrington uh, to St. Paul to collect some money that was owed to Homer Van Meter because they needed some more cash. So he's like, you know, hey, as soon as Pat gets back, you know, we're, we're taking off, like, soon as we get out of here after dinner. This was pretty much a Dillinger trademark. He was known for changing his plans at the last minute because it would, if any police had any kinds of plans, it would totally mess those plans up. So then Dillinger requested an early dinner of steak and garlic, and uh, it was to be served at 4 p.m., now, Mrs. Wanatka needed to tell Henry Voss's wife that Dillinger had changed all these plans so she could get the word to her husband. Um, she ends up, she invited Mrs. Voss into the kitchen and, and told uh, her to help herself to some meat in the freezer because she had bought too much. Now, while they were in the kitchen, Mrs. Wanatka told her, you know, Dillinger is about to leave. So Mrs. Voss jumped in the car and, and goes, just flying to Rhinelander Airport, hauling ass, okay? Because she's like, shit, man, like, this whole thing's gonna, not gonna work, you know? So the feds are still unloading the planes, and they're still trying to plan. And Mr. Voss comes rushing back on the landing field, and he's, and he's shouting Purvis's name, and Purvis is like, dude, just sh shut up. He's like, don't, don't yell my name, you know, because he was worried that Dillinger had some scouts, you know, he, he figured he had people scouting the area and that, you know, they might be on to him. So pretty much he informed Purvis that he had just met his wife on the road and that she had uh, learned since his departure from home that Dillinger and his gang had changed their plans and were leaving after dinner that night. Then Mrs. Voss telephoned Mrs. Winotka and persuaded her to leave the lodge immediately, in which she does. It was about 6.30 p.m., and it's dark out. Purvis is frustrated, okay? He has 50 miles to go, rough terrain, it's cold out. You know, the gang's probably eating supper and getting ready to leave, and, you know, they haven't even gotten any cars to get there yet. You know what I mean? So he's basically like, okay, like, we're going to have to haul balls over there. You know, there's no time to survey the land. We can't plan a good raid. They can't wait for reinforcements. 
you know, they have to get to Little Bohemia as soon as they can. And they're pretty much hoping, like, especially Purvis, you know, he's hoping that they get lucky enough to get there in time. You know, and Purvis asks this guy who was there, who ends up being, his name was uh, Isidore Chikolsky. Uh, he asked him for a ride. Now, Tucholsky was very proud of his car because it was a quote-unquote special job, and it was souped up to go about 103 miles per hour, okay? Now, back in this day, that was a hot rod. That was a fast-ass car, okay? So they end up all going to the Ford dealer's garage, and they hadn't found any cars yet, and they were told that it would be about an hour before they could get enough cars for the agents to use, and they, you know, the federal agents, they don't have an hour to waste. So, with not enough cars, the only car around was the one that they rode in, that souped up, you know, the one from uh, Mr. Tukolsky. So, Purvis wants to rent his car, and he offers to pay for the trip or any damages that might, you know, happen, or any damages that might occur to the car. Now, he's like, he didn't know that they were feds, and he really loved his car, so he's like, hell no, you ain't taking my car. So Purvis is like, listen, man, we're federal agents. We need this car. You know, once he found out who they were, he agreed to it. And just for the record, there were no cars for rent in Rhinelander. So they had to commandeer four other cars, and two of them ended up being junk. Just total, total shit boxes. Uh, Melvin Purvis actually referred to them as quote-unquote dilapidated relics, which I thought was funnier now. So the feds gathered behind the closed doors of the garage and they made sketch plans for the raid. Six men were to attack the front door at Little Bohemia. The others were to split five and five and move in from either side. Voss ended up drawing Purvis a quick diagram of the lodge, but he left out some very, very important details. There was a ditch that was on the left side of the lodge that the feds did not know about. There was also a barbed wire fence on the right-hand side that the feds didn't know about. Voss also forgot to tell Purvis that Wanatka had two very, very alert watchdogs. So the fed, And the feds were told that there was a lake behind the house and that there were no boats on it. So an escape in that direction would be absolutely impossible. The feds who were supposed to attack the front door were supposed to wear, be wearing bulletproof vests as well. Actually, this would be the last time that Melvin Purvis actually wore a bulletproof vest. Uh, they were 24 pounds. And as you see how small Melvin Purvis was, this was probably a lot for him to uh, to lug around. Poor little guy, you know. Poor fella. So, at 7 p.m., they head to Little Bohemia. The roads were really, really bad. It was snowing. It was freezing ass cold out there. And they would, they were driving the cars from, a, you know, like a distance from each other. So, you know, they weren't looking suspicious, all just like in a, in a line, one right after the other. Two of the cars broke down halfway there. Those were the two cars that were the, the ship boxes. And the eight men in those cars were forced to stand on the running boards of the three remaining cars holding their rifles and shotguns like the best they could while holding on to the speeding cars <laughs> like as they're driving as fast as they can down the road. That had to suck, okay? Uh, the weapons were divided equally. 
so that each car would contain a machine gun, a rifle, a shotgun, and tear gas equipment, and then each agent had their sidearms, which were which were pistols. Um, agents eventually arrived at the Birchwood Lodge, which was only a couple miles from Little Bohemia. While agents were at the Birchwood Lodge, Purvis received word that Dillinger had not yet left, so he ordered all lights turned off and nobody was allowed to smoke. And they proceeded slowly through the thick trees. Little Bohemia was located about 400 yards off the main highway, and a single driveway leads into it from the main road. The lodge itself is like a log cabin, okay? And it's surrounded on the front and two sides by, by some pretty thick forest. And, uh, and around the back of it is a lake. On the right side... Uh, there's a series of like little small cottages over there to the right. So they come up the entrance of the driveway and park two cars across it in a V-shaped position so that any escape out that front drive would be impossible. And Purvis whispered orders to spread out and take their positions. Now they were protected by bulletproof vests and armed with machine guns, revolvers, and tear gas. Agents start surrounding the residents as quiet as possible. Up the driveway and through the limbs of the trees, there's um, like this big arc of light outside the front door of the lodge, outside the front of the lodge. It's like, a, you know, like security lights you'd see now. The men begin taking their positions on either side and at the front of the house. And as soon as the dogs see these agents, they start barking like crazy. Now, at this time, when the dogs start barking, Dillinger's in playing cards, and he heard the dogs barking, and he really didn't pay much attention to it because they had been barking, like, while they were there because, well, they had, you know, guys walking around outside, you know, Babyface Nelson was in a cottage beside the lodge, you know, so it might have been him. He really didn't pay much attention. Inside the lodge are two civilian conservation corporation workers. They were known as CCC workers. Uh, a guy by the name of John Morris and Eugene Boisineau. And then there's also a guy in there named John Hoffman, who is a salesman. And they had just finished their Sunday dinner and were about to leave. The three men walked out carrying rifles and got into a 1933 Chevy Coupe. George Bazo and Frank Trobe followed the three guys outside to the porch. Hoffman was driving, Boisineau sat in the middle, and Morris was sitting on the passenger side. As Hoffman started the vehicle, their radio blasted, and it was, like, super loud, okay, and they began driving away. The men drove towards the entrance to Little Bohemia, which was blocked by the two federal agent cars right there. The feds thought that these three guys were Dillinger and members of the gang, so they yell out, they're like, halt, you know, and they say they're federal officers. Well, the guys in the car... They couldn't hear the order, you know, because they had been drinking that night and the radio was on super loud. There's snow coming down, so they really couldn't see that well. So federal agents open fire. Bullets are just tearing through the steel of this car, hitting everybody inside. You know, later accounts would say that there were over 200 holes in this car, okay? Now later, Purvis would claim that the agents... Uh, meant to shoot at the tires, but all the bullets hit the middle and upper portion of the car. So, take that as you will. So the other two guys that had followed outside, they run back into the lodge, okay? 
And inside, there's a bunch of commotion going on. There's a bunch of shit going on, okay? And right at this time, Pat Riley and Pat Sherrington, who were, you know, in St. Paul trying to, uh, you know, get some money that was owed to Van Meter, they pull up to the lodge. Like, they're returning to the lodge right when the shooting starts. So Riley pulls up the main entrance of the lodge, and all of a sudden, all these federal agents, like, just appeared out of nowhere. And he just shuts off the headlights, jams in reverse, and he uh, he backed the car out onto the highway and spun the wheels, and um, he's getting fucking shot at. FBI's shooting at him, too. Now, he ended up blowing out the rear tire, but he still managed to escape. After replacing the tire, Riley sped down the road and got stuck in the mud. A farmer helped him get the car out of the mud, and then, that, and then uh, he ended up heading for St. Paul. Now, as soon as the shots are fired, the outlaws inside are like, shit. Dillinger shuts out all the lights to the cab and all the ones that he could, like, right then and there. And he runs upstairs with Van Meter, and they start grabbing money and guns. Witnesses at the lodge later told agents that the outlaws never fired a single shot during their escape from Little Bohemia. Van Meter, Hamilton, and Dillinger never fired a single shot. Van Meter and Hamilton escaped out an upstairs window at the rear of the lodge, and um, they kind of argue that because um, Hamilton actually had injuries to the groin. He had four four wounds to the groin from a robbery or a shootout with police, um, so they don't think that he could have jumped out there. You know, they think that he, uh, you know, walked out one of the back doors. Now, they say that Dillinger ran down the stairs and escaped out uh, one of the unguarded back or side doors. Wanatka, along with three women, the three women in the house, ran into the basement for cover, or ran into the cellar for cover. Just a few seconds later, Bazo and Trobe joined Wanatka in the cellar, and agents just started opening fire on this place, man. Just bullets everywhere. Now, immediately, every Fed was instructed to just abandon all caution. They're like, fuck it, man. Get to your posts as soon as you can. Now an agent crawls up to the, sh- to the shot up car. And while he's being covered by other agents with machine guns, he goes up to the car. He determined that the man that was slumped in the car had been killed inst- instantly. Um, one of the other guys stood up. He had been shot four times by FBI bullets. And when Fed saw him and saw that he could walk, they, they called to him. They're like, hey, you know, come toward us. Come toward us. <laughs> and he's just like, you guys just fucking shot all of us. So he goes and like stumbles like all the way back to the to the kitchen porch of the lodge and goes back into the lodge. He's like, I'm not fucking going to you guys. So the third guy um, who had also been wounded, he jumped from the car and he took off running into the woods. Right. <laughs> so they later discovered that the three men obviously were not members of the Dillinger gang. They had come, you know, to the tavern to drink beer and have some dinner. The man who was killed was Eugene Boisano. He was 35 years old. He worked for the CCC camp. The wounded man was John Morris. He was 59 years old. He was a cook at the camp. And then John Hoffman, he was the one who ran off into the woods. He was actually an oil station attendant at a nearby town. Uh, It was actually his car that the feds had shot up. While this is going on... (laughs) The feds that are going around to the right of the house to, to like, surround the house, they get caught in the barbed wire fence. 
Now, the men who were there to cover the left side of the house, they run into this fucking drainage ditch because they're in a hurry and it's dark and they don't fucking see it. So, all the feds who were covering the front part, they proceeded to, like, the edge of the clearing, which was just outside this arc of light that I had mentioned, okay? At this point, gunfire starts from the upper stories on the left side of the lodge. This is when just all hell breaks loose, okay? Bullets are just ripping inside and outside of this lodge. They're shattering windows. They're destroying everything. Now, Purvis, he didn't even notice that he was getting shot at until a bullet hits the ground about a yard from his right foot, and then two other bullets hit a tree, like, right behind him. So, he realizes that the shots are coming from an, from a, a small cabin on the right-hand side of the lodge. So, Purvis whirls around, and his machine gun jams. He throws it on the ground, and he grabs his automatic pistol, his sidearm, and he starts sh- returning fire. And all he can see is a short, slender figure who's, like, running towards the woods. That short, slender figure was Babyface Nelson. Now, Babyface Nelson is by the cabin, and he actually stops running away from the feds, turns around, swings his Tommy gun, and just starts spraying bullets everywhere, man. Just everywhere in the end of the woods. He doesn't even get a shit. And they actually later verified that this was Nelson because they traced uh, his movements later on. Like, well, they traced the movements of all the criminals and determined that that was Babyface Nelson. So, Nelson was, like I said, man, the dude was was crazy as shit, okay? If it was a gun battle with feds, he was in it to win it, man. He was the last outlaw to escape the resort. He, uh, he got really pissed, man, about the agent shooting at him, and he actually became the aggressor. <laughs> like, he uh, did not give a shit. He is sitting there just unloading on these agents and, uh, you know, before he left, he ended up, like I said, he exchanged uh, exchanged some shots with Purvis, and then he took off running into the woods. After the feds on the left side of the lodge, they get out of the ditch, okay, at about this point, and they realize that they're getting shot at from the upper windows, too, so they started firing back. Now, mind you, this is total fucking war for about five minutes, all right? And then all of a sudden, the firing from the lodge stopped. Dillinger and the gang were escaping out a back second story window and moving toward the right side of the lodge through the brush down by the lake. Dillinger, Van Meter, and Hamilton slid down the steep shore banks at the rear of the lodge and headed north along Little Star Lake. They run through the woods and pitch black for about a mile and they find their way onto highway um, onto US Route 51. Now the gangsters, they're in desperate need of a car. They need a car really bad, and they spot a Model T across the highway at a place called Mitchell's Lodge. So they go up and knock on the door of a guy named E.J. Mitchell and his wife. Now, Mrs. Mitchell was very, very sick. She's lying on the couch when uh, when the guys got there. And, you know, these this was an elderly couple. He ends up opening the door, and uh, he's greeted by three men. Red Hamilton asked him if they could get a drink of water. And uh, Mitchell lets him in. He's like, yeah, no problem at all. So Hamilton walks directly across the room, grabs the phone, and jerks it out of the wall. So Mrs. Mitchell later said that at this point, Dillinger says, quote, We don't want a drink. What we want is a car to make our getaway, because the federal officers are after us. Now I'm John Dillinger, but I don't want you to be afraid. We're not going to hurt you any. 
We just came here to get a car, and I'm not as bad as they have me pictured. Now, mother, don't be afraid. End quote. Mrs. Mitchell described Dillinger as being polite and the most well-mannered of the three men. And here's a real clip about what Mrs. Mitchell had to say about her encounter with John Dillinger. Two men came in and asked for a drink of water. And upon Mr. Mitchell telling them to help themselves, they said, why, we don't want a drink. What we want is a car to make our getaway because the federal officers are after us and we must get out of here. Now, I'm John Dillinger, but I don't want you to be afraid. We're not going to hurt you any. We just came here to get a car. And uh, I'm not so bad as they have me pictured out. Now, Mother, don't be afraid. The couple told Dillinger that the Model T hadn't ran all winter. Then they asked about uh, the 1930 Ford Coupe, which was parked outside. Uh, Mitchell told them that the car belonged to a guy named Robert Johnson who lived at a cottage uh, that was close by. Dillinger stayed with the Mitchells while Van Meter and Hamilton went to Robert Johnson's. They knocked on the door and told Johnson that Mrs. Mitchell was ill and needed a ride to the hospital. So Johnson hurries up, he gets dressed, uh, he goes out the front door, and there's standing Homer Van Meter pointing a gun at him. And he said, you're going to drive us out of town, man. Now, before leaving, Dillinger ordered everybody outside on the porch. E.J. Mitchell, he said no. He's like, listen, man, my wife is too sick. She can't come out here in the cold. So Dillinger goes and he gets a blanket and he wraps it around her. And he helped her out onto the porch. Tommy Carroll had also headed north along the shore banks when he made his escape. And he tried to catch up with Dillinger. And he realized he was like, I'm not going to fucking catch him. He's too fast. So he just goes to set his shit. You know, he's like, I'm just going to escape, have to escape alone. Right. So he walks about two miles down the highway past the Mitchell's resort. Um, he ended up getting to the Northern lights resort. He ends up spotting a Packard parked outside, um, just outside the lodge. He hot wired it and he was gone. Okay. Now special agents, Jay Newman and Carter Baum were sent to the nearest telephone um, which was located in a country store owned by a man named Kerner. Um, and they were to call other special agents that were on the way to Little Bohemia um, to let them know where where they were, okay? So at this point, back at the lodge, the feds start shouting for people to come out because they didn't fucking know that everybody had already escaped, okay? He thought all the gangsters were, they thought all the gangsters were still back in the house. You know, obviously they had already made their escape, um, probably about the time that all the feds were caught in barbed wire fences and stuck in drainage ditches. You know what I mean? So the agents ended up firing like hundreds of rounds into this lodge, man, just totally obliterated it. And they heard a voice yell from the lodge, quote, quit shooting and we'll come out, end quote. Wanatka, Bazo, and Trobe. They were in the cellar, like I said, for, for the main part of the fire. They came out with their hands up, and they were followed by John Morris, who was the, the wounded CCC worker uh, from where they were shoot, shot out the car, you know. Now, Wanatka was, um, he was pretty, he was pretty scared. He was fucking nervous. He was freaking out, okay. So he says there's still four men in the house because he didn't even realize that the guys had escaped either. So 
one of the feds goes around to each post and gives them in the information like, hey, there's still four dudes in this house. Like, there's still four gangsters. We're going to get these fuckers. But in the lodge, everything was quiet. And that's because, like I said, everybody's gone. But the feds thought that they were just waiting for them to come in. You know, they're like, no, they're just waiting for us to come in. Then they're going to they're gonna, then they're going to shoot all of us. The feds had the place pretty good covered and they decide, you know, they're like, OK, let's take care of the wounded men. And then uh, we'll go throw some tear gas shells in the windows of the lodge. <laughs> the FBI in this whole thing is just like the greatest shit ever. It's literally like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. OK, so an ambulance ends up getting called to take care of the casualties like I said, the feds still think the gang is inside the lodge, okay? So that whole arc of light out in front of the lodge, the feds are just behind that arc of light in the darkness. They're like, because they're sitting there thinking, they're like, as soon as we walk into this well-lit little area, they're going to shoot us. So when Wanaka comes out, he uh, comes out of the house without a coat. It's super cold outside, okay? And... Even, you know, Melvin Purvis later goes on to state, he's like, you know, he would, he would have died from exposure soon enough. So when Wanatka asked to go to a nearby friend's house to get a coat, he, they gave him permission. They're like, yeah, go ahead. A little bit later, Wanaka comes back. He's out of breath from running. And he says, quote, someone is holding up your men at Mr. Kerner's house, end quote. So two special agents are sent there. They return and Purvis is just literally dreading their report. He's like, please tell me what went wrong now. And they stated that Special Agent Carter Baum had been killed instantly and that both Special Agent Jay Newman and Mr. Carl Christensen, who was a local deputy constable um, who had joined them, had been severely wounded by one of the D Dillinger gang. And uh, they were the men were sent to Ironwood, Michigan, which was the nearest hospital. What happened was, when the three feds got to the house to make the phone call, they saw an automobile in which three people were seated. One of the special agents asked Mr. Christensen whose car it was, and Mr. Christensen replied that it was alright, it belonged to, uh, you know, Mr. Kerner. So Baum, Newman, and Christensen stopped their car in front of the house. As they're walking, they get closer to the car. A guy moved out from behind it. It was Babyface Nelson, and he's got his automatic. And he says, spoke, speaks fast, and he says, quote, I know you have on bulletproof vests, so I will give it to you high and low, and then just starts firing, right? So Baum is killed pretty much instantly, and Jay Newman, uh, they were actually close enough, like, it was so close. Jay Newman actually tried to grab the gun out of Nelson's hands, uh, you know, and he just couldn't, barely couldn't reach it. He actually received a bullet wound in the head and he fell. He fell. So babyface Nelson gets into the car that the agents had driven there in and takes off. Right then, Newman regains consciousness. As the car starts disappearing, it's about 100 yards away. He just starts emptying, emptying his automatic at it. Obviously, it didn't play any effect because the car that Nelson stole from the agents just happened to be the special job car. The only one that could go 103 miles an hour and it was the fastest one. So babyface Nelson is gone, right? Now Kerner, who, you know, later gave information, said that Nelson had appeared at the store with a gun wanting a car. He was just about to leave when the special agents and uh, Christensen uh, drove up. Now, 
While that's going on, the feds are continuing to cover the lodge. They searched the grounds and in the garages they found the Buick Coupe and the Ford Sedan, which both cars belonged to the gang, and they were fully packed with luggage and they contained machine guns, bulletproof vests, rifles, ammunition. The gang was literally getting ready to leave, alright? So the feds, what they do, is they start shooting gas shells at the windows. Now, two agents in a car rush up to the front of the house while the others covered it with machine guns to protect them. And uh, they ended up throwing gas bombs in the front door. The federal agents that were surrounding the place, they were gassed by their own tear gas because of the wind. It literally blew it right back towards them and gassed all of them, right? So after a little bit, they heard a woman's voice in the house crying out, We will come out if you stop firing. So the agents are like, Come out and bring everyone with you with your hands up. You know, the gunfire stopped, and uh, three women uh, exited the building, the women being Helen Gillis, Jean Delaney, and uh, Marie Comforty. They they came out, dude. They're, they're fucking freaking out. They surrendered. No conflicts whatsoever. They were taken into custody and questioned. You know, they said, we don't know where the hell they went. They escaped. They left us here, okay? So a, a group of six special agents then rushed the first floor of the lodge, and... As soon as they go in, they get gassed by their own tear gas that was still in there. Then they go and they rush the second floor, and then they all come running out and put their heads under the water pump to, like, reverse the effects of tear gas. That's how that works. Like, water is your best friend. When they recovered from the gassing, they rushed to the cellar uh, in the top floor. Uh, they searched the lodge. You know, that's when they realized that the gangsters had escaped. So, you know... And here's an actual clip of an interview with Wanatka about John Dillinger. You said it, I found out it was Dillinger. I thought it was from the paper, you know. While he was here these two days, he had a lot of fun. He's a good card player and he was a very continual fella. All in all, Little Bohemia Lodge. Captured were Helen Gillis, Marie Comforty, and Jean Delaney. Wounded were John Hoffman, John Morris, who was... <laughs> Wounded by the FBI, J.C. Newman, Carl C. Christensen, which was, uh, they were wounded by Babyface Nelson, uh, Eugene Boisenau was killed by the FBI, and, uh, Carter Baum was killed by Babyface Nelson. Hoover fucking loses his mind. One of the reasons he loses his mind is because when Purvis told him that they had more than likely captured Dillinger. They're like, we know where he is. We're sending all the troops there. Hoover calls all the presses and he's like, you know, we caught Dillinger. We're going to have big, leave the headlines open in the morning. We're going to have big headlines for you. Well, there were some big headlines and it was all about how bad the FBI fucked up at Little Bohemia and the fact that John Dillinger and these crazy dudes got away again. Again. So on Monday, April 23rd, 1934, the next day, near Hastings, Minnesota, they were attempting to drive to St. Paul. Uh, Dillinger, Van Meter, and Hamilton get into a gun battle with police because they are recognized. Hamilton is wounded in the back. Hamilton, he ends up getting uh, taken to Chicago. And while they're there, Dillinger actually goes to the syndicate. He goes to the Chicago mob for help, and they turned him down. They're like, dude, 
Like, we're into some crazy shit, but you're just way, way over the level, man. Like, we don't want anything to do with you right now. So they turned him down for any kind of help. So he gets a hold of a guy named Doc Moran. And he is a physician of the Barker Carpus gang. And Doc Moran refuses, but sends them to uh, to the Barker Carpus game. And about right about this point, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, is pushing Congress to pack six crime bills for federal agents. And it only took four weeks to get these crime bills through. And basically it was giving um, federal agents like just total jurisdiction over whatever the fuck they wanted for, you know, that's for the most part, that's pretty much how it went. Literally only took a month to push these six crime bills through Congress, which is fucking crazy. So on Friday, April 27th, uh, John Hamilton ends up dying from his wounds in Illinois. Uh, he is buried by Dillinger Van Meter, Volney Davis, Doc Barker, William Weaver, and Harry Campbell in a gravel pit near Oswego, Illinois, uh, the thing about that is, uh, you guys want to look up some good stuff? There's a lot of evidence and reason to believe that Red Hamilton uh, did not die, actually. So, if you want to go on a little side trail rabbit hole, besides the one about Dillinger not dying, <laughs> um, there's a, it, that's a good one for you, actually. It's really, really interesting. So, after Little Bohemia in, in very early May, Hoover gets tired of fucking around. He's like, I am done with these guys, man. He brings in some Texans. And, uh, you know, they're, they're basically going to look over the Chicago office, help catch Dillinger, and these guys are Charles Winstead, uh, another guy named uh, Jerry Campbell, who's a former Oklahoma policeman, and another guy named Clarence Hurt. Now, on Wednesday, May 2nd, 1934, the blood-stained getaway car was found abandoned in Chicago. And also on this day, um, uh, in St. Paul, Billy Frechette pleads not guilty to having harbored Dillinger, and her bond is set at $60,000. And in today's money, that's $1.1 million, all right? About, you know, a week, two weeks later, on Tuesday, May 15th, the trial of Billy Frechette, Dr. Clayton May, and Augusta Salt begins in St. Paul, I mean, anybody who had anything to Dillinger was getting arrested and tried at this point. About another week later, uh, Wednesday, May 23rd, Frechette and May found guilty of conspiring to harbor Dillinger. Nurse Salt is acquitted. Frechette sentenced to two years at the federal prison in uh, Michigan. Dr. May sentenced to two years at Leavenworth. Now, according to Ardo Leary in March 1934, this is when Dillinger starts expressing an interest in plastic surgery. And he had uh, asked O'Leary to check with uh, Pickett, you know, on, you know, that kind of stuff. He's like, just let me know what Pickett thinks about this. Like, he knows everybody everywhere, so ask him how I can get some plastic surgery. So at the end of April, Pickett paid a visit to his old friend, Dr. Wilhelm uh, Loser. Uh, Loser had practiced in Chicago for 27 years before being convicted under the Harrison Narcotic Act in 1931. Um, he had been sentenced to three years at Leavenworth, but he was paroled early on December 7th, 1932, um, and of course he got paroled early with Pickett's help, so uh, he definitely owed Pickett some favors. The deal was that Pickett said, Pickett said Dillinger would have to pay $5,000 for plastic surgery, $4,400 
uh, split between Pickett, Loser, and O'Leary, and $600 for Dr. Harold Cassidy, who would administer the anesthetic. And the procedure would take place at the home of Pickett's longtime friend, 67-year-old James Probosco, at the end of May. So on Sunday, May 27, 1934, Dillinger moves into the Chicago home of James Probosco. The next day, Loser was picked up at his home at 7.30 p.m. by O'Leary and Cassidy. The three of them drove to Probosco's place. Dillinger chose to have a general anesthetic. Loser later testified, quote, I asked him what work he wanted done. He wanted two moles removed on the right lower forehead between the eyes and one on the left angle, and one at the left angle, outer angle of the eye. I wanted a depression of the nose filled in, a scar, a large one on the left of the median line of the upper lip excised, wanted his dimples removed, and wanted the angle of the mouth drawn up. He didn't say anything about the fingers that day to me. Cassidy administered an overdose of ether, which caused Dillinger to suffocate. He began to turn blue and stop breathing. Loser pulled Dillinger's tongue out of his mouth with a pair of forceps and at the same time forcing both elbows into his rib cage, and Dillinger gasped and resumed breathing. The procedure continued with only a local anesthetic. Loser removed several moles on Dillinger's forehead, made an incision uh, in his nose and an incision in his chin, and, and tied back both cheeks. Um, and by the way, this uh, plastic surgery information, uh, Murderpedia.com, by the way. Got to give them credit. They did a hell of a job on this. Uh, June 2nd, Loser met with Pickett again. Pickett saying that more work was needed on Dillinger and that Van Meter now wanted the same work done to him. Also, both now wanted work done on their fingertips. The price for the fingerprint procedure would be $500 per hand or $100 a finger. Loser used a mixture of nitric and hydrochloric acid to remove their fingerprints. On June 3rd, Loser later testified, quote, Cassidy and I worked on Dillinger and Van Meter simultaneously on June 3rd. While the work was being done, Dillinger and Van Meter changed off. The work that could be done while the patient was sitting up, that patient was in the sitting room. The work that had to be done while the man was lying down, that patient was on the couch in the bedroom. They were changed back and forth according to the work to be done. The hands were sterilized, made aseptic with antiseptics, thoroughly washed with soap and water, used sterile gauze afterwards to keep them clean. Next, cutting instrument, knife was used to expose the lower skin. In other words, take off the epidermis and expose the derma. Then alternately, the acid and the alkaloid was applied as was necessary to produce the desired results. June 5th, a more minor work was done. Loser made some small corrections, first on Van Meter, then Dillinger. Loser stated, quote, A man came in before I left, who I found out later was Babyface Nelson. He came in with a drum of machine gun bullets under his arm, threw them on the bed or the couch in the bedroom, and started to talk to Van Meter. The two then motioned for Dillinger to come over, and the three went back into the kitchen. Peggy Doyle later told agents, quote, Dillinger and Van Meter resided at Probosco's home until the last week of June 1934, that on some occasions they would be away for a day or two, sometimes leaving separately, and on other occasions together, that at this time Van Meter usually parked his car in the rear of Probosco's residence outside the back fence, that she gathered that Dillinger was keeping 
company with a young woman who lived on the north side of Chicago, and as much, he would state upon leaving Probosco's home that he was going in the direction of Diversity Boulevard that Van Meter apparently was not acquainted with Dillinger's friend, and she heard him warning Dillinger to be careful about striking up acquaintances with girls he knew nothing about, that Dillinger and Van Meter usually kept a machine gun and an open case under the piano in the parlor, and they also kept a shotgun under the parlor table, end quote. Now, O'Leary went on and he stated that Dillinger expressed a lot of dissatisfaction with the facial work that Loser had performed on him. Like, he was pissed. Loser even said that when he looked in the mirror, he's like, what, you know, what the fuck did you, what did you guys do to me? You know, um, O'Leary said that on another occasion that Probosco had told him the son of a bitch has gone out for one of his walks that he did not know when he would return, that Probosco raved about the craziness of Dillinger, stating that he was always going for walks and was likely to cause the authorities to locate the place where he was staying, that Probosco stated frankly on this occasion that he was afraid to have the man around. That's a direct quote, and it's like, listen, Dillinger wasn't like other dudes. Like, he walked around openly. Like, he didn't care. He had, like, we had stayed in part one and two. Dude had balls of steel, okay? So Saturday, June 9th, 1934, Dillinger and Van Meter drive to Indianapolis in an attempt to find and kill an informer named Art McGinnis. Art McGinnis had infiltrated the gang and he was working for uh, Matt Leach, who was the, uh, the head of the Indiana State Police. Now, they ended up finding him and they lost him in a crowd and uh, the two ended up heading back to Chicago. Now, when they go back to Chicago, Dillinger goes into hiding. And the federal agents had no leads. They had no idea where this dude was. Well, he started going under the alias of Jimmy Lawrence, who was a petty criminal from Wisconsin, who actually looked like Dillinger. And he was, from what I read in a couple accounts, he was an ex-boyfriend of Billy Frechette as well. He starts working as a clerk. And Dillinger found that in a large city like Chicago, he was pretty much able to lead an anonymous existence for a while. What he didn't realize is that, uh, you know, Chicago was the uh, center of the federal agents. That was the hub. That was the lion's den of all the federal agents that were trying to find him. Dillinger had, was always known to be a fan of the Chicago Cubs. Yes, another reason to love this guy. And I, listen, I know I, he's a criminal. I'm not glorifying him, okay? I'm just saying, any Cubs fan is a good man, okay? So instead of lying low, like any other criminal would on the run, he attended the Cubs game at Wrigley Field during uh, June and July. Uh, he's known to have been at Wrigley on Friday, June 8th, and he uh, unfortunately lost the watched the Cubs lose to uh, Cincinnati Reds 4-3. to not happy about that. The best part was also in attendance at the game were Dillinger's lawyer, who was Louis Paquette, and Captain John Stieg of the Dillinger squad. <laughs> so, I mean, what what do you do? You know, what can you say? You can't make this up. So also in early June, a woman named Polly Hamilton, who just happened to look a lot like Billy Frechette, uh, she's unemployed, recently divorced. She uh, ends up coming back to Chicago. She left for a while, and she meets Anna Sage, who ran a, a really big, thriving prostitution ring at the Costier Hotel in Gary, Indiana. Sage invited Polly Hamilton 
to work at the Coster. Um, some newspapers reported that she worked as a prostitute, but she had training in nursing, so she could have helped Sage look after the girls, uh, helped her maintain her ledger books, take care of housekeeping. So, you know, nobody's ever said that she was positively a, a prostitute. A lot of people dispute that. Uh, Hamilton also waitressed in the hotel's notoriously rough saloon, which was nicknamed the Bucket of Blood. She eventually joined Sage in East Chicago, where the madam ran her most lucrative brothel, thanks to the part to the police protection that uh, was provided by her boyfriend, who was a corrupt cop out of East Chicago by the name of Martin Zarkovich. Now, Martin Zarkovich, I mean, the dude was involved in bribery scandal like he was a dirty fucking cop, okay? Uh, yeah, that was her, her former boyfriend, her boyfriend, whatever the case might have been. Like, Martin Zarkovich probably, it's more than likely that he lost his marriage because of Anna Sage. Like, his wife found out about the affair and found out that he was, uh, you know, sleeping with a prostitute all the time. So, you know, it is what it is. Now, Polly Hamilton ended up sharing an apartment with Anna Sage, and, you know, she did a lot of the same duties she had done at the Coster. She made extra money uh, in a, as a sandwich shop waitress. So, you know, she was trying to just earn a living. She, I really honestly don't think she was a prostitute, but, you know, it's disputed. So in early June 1934, Polly Hamilton, who was 26 at the time, would meet the most wanted criminal in America at a Chicago nightclub called the Barrel of Fun. He introduced himself as Jimmy Lawrence, a board of trade clerk. He had undergone plastic surgery to look less like, you know, John Dillinger, but uh, there were a lot of her friends that still commented that, you know, she's like, hey, you know, he looks quite a bit like John Dillinger, man. In a 1934 interview with the Chicago Herald and Examiner, Hamilton described John Dillinger as a shy, good-natured man who called her Countess, drank very little alcohol, never swore, and gave her two dozen roses and an amethyst ring for her birthday. Um, Dillinger took her out every evening to nightclubs, movie halls, and amusement parks, yet never flashed anything larger than a $20 bill. Hamilton told the Herald and Examiner after his death, Quote, now that I know he was John Dillinger, I can understand why he always liked the shooting ranges. Customers would line up to watch him knock over targets, end quote. Now, Dillinger and Hamilton had dated for a week when uh, she introduced him to her friend, Anna Sage. They frequently would play cards at Sage's house. Polly Hamilton said, quote, it was at Anna Sage's that we found out what a great big Indiana farm boy he was. All he asked for was a home-cooked dinner. Baking powder biscuits and chicken gravy were what he liked best. And would you believe it, he'd wash the dishes. End quote. Hamilton said they were engaged and she was, quote, just goofy about him. Although she never knew if he loved her. Uh, most people believe that Hamilton, you know, bore the resemblance to, uh, you know, Billy Frechette, which... Which she kind of did. She had a light, like, lot lighter skin. Like, Billy Frechette was a, of Native American descent, so uh, she had a little bit darker skin. But but they do actually look uh, quite a bit alike. Um, Anna Sage, meanwhile, had plans of her own, pretty much. Now, um, despite, you know, Dillinger having plastic surgery to alter his appearance, she she still recognized him. Okay, she knew he was John Dillinger. 
She was actually facing deportation at the time for bad moral behavior. She was going to be sent back to her native Romania. Basically, she had been busted being a, a brothel madam, and they were going to deport her ass. Sage saw him as a, as a bargaining chip to have charges against her dropped and to earn a, a cash reward for the $10,000, you know. So she told, told her boyfriend, Zarkovich, you know, as a detective, um, and he is the one who was the middleman between Anna Sage and the federal agents. So on Friday, June 22nd, 1934, John Dillinger celebrates his 31st birthday with Polly Hamilton at the French Casino Nightclub in Chicago. And also, on his 31st birthday, John Dillinger is officially named Public Enemy Number 1. That means that every single member of law enforcement in this country is going to be hunting him down. And Hoover has given them a shoot-to-kill order. It's, we're not going to take this guy in. We're not going to fucking do this and that. It is, if you see him, fucking kill him. So he realizes that when he gets named public enemy number one, and he was actually the very first public enemy number one, he realizes he needs to get his ass to Mexico, and he needs money to do that. And then just a few days later on Tuesday, June 26, 1934, Dillinger attends a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. Uh, the Cubs ended up beating the Dodgers 5-2. to two. Yes. And then... On Saturday, June 30th, 1934, at about noon, John Dillinger commits his last bank robbery. The gang arrived at the Merchants National Bank in South Bend, Indiana. As they entered, Nelson fired his machine gun to get everyone's attention inside the bank, which in turn got everyone's attention outside the bank. So all these people come running towards the bank, uh, and that would include Officer Howard Wagner, uh, he hid behind a car and started firing at Van Meter, who was standing outside as a lookout uh, in front of the bank. After pushing off a few townspeople who had come to help, he shot back at Wagner, killing him. A uh, shop owner brandishing a pistol hit Nelson as he came out of the bank, but the bulletproof vest he was wearing saved him. He spun around and just started spraying bullets everywhere. He ended up wounding two pedestrians. Uh, the shop owner backed off, only to be replaced by a teenager who jumped on Babyface Nelson's back and starts <laughs> beating the fuck out. Starts punching him in the face, right? Uh, Nelson threw him off and uh, threw him through a window and fired a shot, and he actually hit the boy in the hand. As Dillinger and the others were exiting the bank with hostages, police and citizens are firing at them. Um, most of their bullets actually hit hostages, unfortunately. And that's why we don't, you know, like, uh, you know, citizens jumping into crazy shit like that. The gun battle went on uh, as the gang members tried to make their make it to their getaway car. Van Meter was shot in the head uh, as a gang member, member dragged him, was dragging him into the car. Bullet, which was a twenty two caliber, entered his forehead near the hairline and burrowed under his scalp. And it exited six inches out the back. The total take on the robbery netted each gang member $4,800, which was uh, $91,000 in today's money. It later came to light that all the citizens were, were pretty much started attacking them because they were greedy as shit. They wanted the reward money. So all the citizens started stepping up and started, you know, trying to, trying to take out the gang members. 
wounded was Van Meter. He is wounded in the head. Delos Cohen, Perry Staley, Vice President Jacob Solomon, Bystander Samuel Toth, who was a motorist, and then uh, the only one killed was Officer Howard Wagner, and he was killed by Homer Van Meter. Sunday, July 1st, 1934, Pat Riley tells FBI agents that probably all phone numbers found in possession of the gang or the moles uh, were phone numbers or addresses and letters. Um, they are likely to be in code. The numbers appear, appeared in a written form and each subtracted from 10 to obtain the correct number intended. For example, Dale 2435 would be used for 8675. Riley also informed the agents that Babyface Nelson brought a letter from uh, Louis Sinraki, who was the uh, the owner of Louis' place, Fox River Grove, Illinois, and promptly handed the letter over to Emil Wanatka immediately upon their arrival to Little Bohemia. Riley claims he saw the envelope, but not its contents. So, there you go. That's where, you know, a lot of that information and probably money exchanged hands and the whole Little Bohemia, um, Louis Pickett, and Dillinger, Dillinger scheme there. Uh, Monday, June 2nd, 1934, sometime in the evening, Dillinger attends a movie at the Biograph in Chicago. Um, later that week, on July 7th, Dillinger meets with O'Leary in Chicago to discuss Billy's appeal. Uh, Polly Hamilton is nearby, but uh, O'Leary declines an offer to be introduced. He doesn't even want to meet her. He's like, nah, man, I don't give a fuck. So um, Tuesday, July 10th, a few days later, Dillinger, Polly Hamilton, Van Meter, and uh, Marie Comforty attend the World's Fair. Now keep in mind, you guys, they're at the World's Fair, okay? Dillinger is literally the most wanted man on the fucking planet right now. Okay, and he's literally going to the World's Fair, just not giving a shit. I mean, I know some of you out there can comprehend this, and I know I keep harping about it, but that's insane. Like, the dude just was the calmest, coolest guy in the world, man. So, uh, you know, the next day on July 11th, O'Leary meets with Dillinger in Chicago to discuss the possibility of maybe a Billy Frechette breakout. Um, nothing ends up coming of that. Uh, about a week later, on July 19th, Purvis and Anna Sage met, and he promised to do all he could to stop her deportation proceedings, but that he could not guarantee anything. She told Purvis that she, Dillinger, and Hamilton sometimes went to the Marlboro Theater to see uh, a movie, and they might be going again soon. She agreed to work with Purvis and keep him informed as to when Dillinger might come to her home. Purvis assembled a team of FBI agents and hired guns from police forces from outside of the area because Purvis was like, listen, man, I don't trust any of these Chicago cops. They are dirty as shit. They are, you know, corrupted. I don't trust any of them. So he's... He would rather not even deal with the Chicago police. I mean, Chicago's still pretty fucked up. I mean, but uh, back in the 30s, you know, it was just bribery and, and corruption. You know, it's pretty much still is. But so on Sunday, July 22nd, 1934, Anna Sage was invited to join her friend and Dillinger to watch Manhattan Melodrama, which was a gangster film starring Clark Gable at Chicago's Biograph Theater. 
Anna Sage phones Melvin Purvis at 5.30 p.m. to inform him that she, Dillinger, and Polly will either go to the Biograph or the Marlboro Theater this e- that evening. She said she would wear a white blouse and orange skirt to make the trio easy to identify. At 8.15 p.m., Dillinger, Sage, and Polly arrive at the Biograph. After the three enter the theater, more than 20 federal agents are summoned. When Dillinger was in the theater, Samuel P. Cowley, who was the lead agent, contacted J. Edgar Hoover for instructions. He recommended that they wait outside rather than risk a gun battle within the theater. He told the agents not to put themselves in harm's way and that any man could open fire on Dillinger at the first sign of resistance. Now, while they're staking out the Biograph Theater, um, the feds are kind of freaking out. Okay, Melvin Purvis, a little nervous Purvis. Okay, the ticket girl thought the agents were fucking criminals who were getting ready to rob the place because fucking nervous Purvis over here keeps asking if the show would be out, let out on time, how much longer, how much longer till it's done, like when, when is it going to be over, you know, so she tells her manager and the fucking manager calls the Chicago police and they show up and they had to be waved off by federal agents um, who told them that they were on a stakeout for an important target. On July 22nd, 1934, 10.35 p.m., when the film ended, the three of them walked out. Dillinger and the two ladies turned left. They were walking arm in arm. Purvis stood at the front door, right up against the building, and signaled Dillinger's exit by lighting a cigar. And he was so nervous, his hands were shaking while he's lighting it. Both he and the other agents reported that Dillinger turned his head and looked directly at Purvis as he walked by. Didn't even recognize him. Then he glances across the street, and he starts walking a little faster. The women drop back. Then he moved ahead of the two ladies. At this point, the agents circled him, and Purvis, who was sweating just absolutely profusely because it was 100 degrees outside, like, literally, this is one of the hottest days on Chicago record I think like on just this day alone I think there's like 20 fucking people that died in Chicago because it was literally so hot but he shouts quote stick him up Johnny we have you surrounded end quote John Dillinger reached into his pocket for his Colt 380 and he failed to get it out so he takes off running into a nearby alley which was just you know not that far away three men pursued Dillinger into the alley and fired Clarence Hurt shot twice, Charles Winstead three times, and Herman Hollis once. Dillinger was struck four times, with two bullets grazing his face and one causing a superficial wound on his right side. The fatal bullet entered through the back of his neck, severed the spinal cord at his second vertebra, passed into his brain, and exited just under his right eye, severing two sets of veins and arteries, and he falls face first onto the ground, Witnesses say that he saw his lips moving, but nobody could hear what he what he actually said, and some people say that it might have just been like him taking his last breath. So at 10.40 p.m., John Dillinger dies. Agent Charles Winstead is believed to have fired the fatal shot. Witnesses tell the Dillinger family that the authorities never called out for Dillinger to stop and that he was shot at a close proximity. Some witnesses say that it was within an arm's reach. An ambulance was summoned, but it didn't matter. Dillinger had died from the gunshot wounds, 
He was officially pronounced dead at Alexian Brothers Hospital. And according to investigators, Dillinger died without saying a word. And he actually was not even allowed inside the hospital. When they transported him there, he was laid out on the front yard of it. It's fucking disgraceful. Two female bystanders, Teresa Paulus and Edda Natalski, were wounded. Dillinger uh, bumped into Natalski just as the shooting started. and Natalski was shot and was uh, she was taken to Columbus Hospital. Um, there were reports of pe- people dripping their handkerchiefs and skirts into the pool of blood that had formed around Dillinger um, as he's laying in the alley. And they were doing that as keepsakes telling their boyfriends or girlfriends, look, honey, we got something we can show the grandkids now. Like I said, uh, Winstead was later thought to have fired the final shot. He ended up receiving a a personal letter of commendation from J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, For those of you who are in my Facebook group and follow the uh, Facebook page, I actually posted that letter. There's a, a copy of it, and I posted it on the page. It's actually really cool. Uh, Hamilton and Sage ended up fleeing the scene. Hamilton reportedly fled to her workplace and supposedly went drinking with a friend of hers because she was just fucking out of it. Um, she really claimed, she claimed to know nothing of Sage's plan. Honestly, I believe her, but the uh, government sent her and, uh, Anna Sage to Detroit to protect their identities Polly Hamilton was actually scared of repercussions of the rest of the Dillinger gang. Um, Polly Hamilton told her brother and mother that she had been warned, quote-unquote, not to talk, and made very few comments to her family about details of the shooting. Um, She claimed she knew Dillinger only as Jimmy Lawrence. On Tuesday, July 24th, 1934... Dillinger is carried in wicker basket from the Undertaker to the hearse to begin the journey to Mooresville, Indiana. After a six-hour ride, the caravan arrives. The body is carried into the Harvey Funeral Home. The body is removed after a showing before thousands of viewers in Mooresville. Then John's body was moved. The move from the funeral home took place at 10.15 p.m. and uh, moved to Maywood, Indiana to the home of Audrey Hancock, which was Dillinger's sister. On Wednesday, July 25, 1934, the Hancocks permitted public viewing of the body in the front parlor of their home before the funeral. Casket then moved to Crown Hill Cemetery during a severe thunderstorm, and the casket was lowered at 3.15 p.m. Now, I do have to touch on this subject real quick. There is a lot of speculation that John Dillinger did not die. And I am 75% convinced that he didn't. There's a guy out there named Nash. Okay. This is a current fellow. I think, I can't remember his first name. I think his first name is Jay. I'm not 100% sure. But his last name is Nash. This dude has put in the research. I'm telling you right now. There's some weird shit going on with John Dillinger's death. When you start thinking about cover-ups and conspiracies, you got to start thinking means, motive, and opportunity. Who had the means, motive, and opportunity for John Dillinger to be eradicated off the planet and go live somewhere else in hiding? I'll tell you exactly fucking who. J. Edgar Hoover. That's who. John Dillinger was a thorn in this guy's side. Roosevelt was about ready to hang J. Edgar Hoover out to dry because of, because of Dillinger. 
Like, if Dillinger worked with the feds to fake his death, which it's not out of the realm of possibilities. You guys know me. Like, I'm I'm into conspiracies and shit. You know, I'm not a flat earther. Like, that's ridiculous shit. There is a lot of evidence to back up the fact that John Dillinger did not die. Okay, and one thing that triggered me, like, first of all, the feds are like, oh, yeah, they, they took two fingerprint sets of fingerprints on the scene of the alley, you know, in the alley, and then they took one in the morgue afterward. John, first of all, don't tell me that his fucking fingerprints are a match when the dude had him fucking burned off with, you know, nitric and hydrochloric acid and shit, okay? Don't even tell me that shit. But the one thing that got me was that the guy they killed in the alley that day had prescription glasses on. And that is something that John Dillinger did not need. He did not require glasses. That's the one thing that I was like, huh, that's a little weird. So I started looking a little more into it. Now, supposedly at one point, John Dillinger had written a letter to J. Edgar Hoover and was like, hey, how about we do this? You will be famous. You will be the head of the FBI and eventually, you know, unbeknownst to him, more powerful than the president of the United States at one point in time for several years, actually, because he fucking blackmailed everybody because he was an asshole means motive and opportunity, people. Like, there is some weird shit going on. And this dude named Nash, the guy who found all this evidence and all this information, I'm going to tell you right now, I want to meet this dude. I want him on the fucking podcast. I just, I need to talk to this man because he supposedly has this evidence. And I want to fucking see it, all right? But all that bullshit aside, there might be further down the road, definitely not now. I got to get back I got to get back into some unsolved true crime. I got to do a paranormal episode down the road here. Um actually shutter.com is is um sponsoring an episode on May uh 15th. So that's a perfect time for me to do a paranormal episode. I'll actually have promo codes for you guys so you can get shutter.com for a month. It's literally for all you horror freaks out there, which is I'm one of them. Um, you know, might be a good time to debunk the Warrens. I don't know. I've been wanting to do that shit for a long time, but there might be an episode further down the road just dedicated to the death of John Dillinger. Uh, there's a lot of information out there, some a lot of interesting information out there, but I might also do it on Patreon. I'm not a hundred percent sure yet. Uh, you know, we'll see when the time gets there, but I will say this final thoughts on John Dillinger. You can see that on my YouTube channel. Just look up Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. Hit the subscribe button. I'm going to leave you with John Dillinger Sr. I'm going to let you listen to what he had to say in an interview after his son's death. I'm awful sorry that John got into this trouble. I'm sorry that it ended up the way it has. I want the people to know that I tried to raise him right and that he's always been a good-hearted boy. I believe that's about all.